exciting. It's practically here. We're both decorating. It's, uh-huh. uh, but I do still have pumpkins on my porch because I don't want to just throw them out because one of them is ginormous. I feel I felt really bad. <laughs> I like piled all our pumpkins up in a weird wheelbarrow. Uh huh. And was just like, guys, your your seasonal purpose is done. I know. Well, and it sucks because I found this year the most <laughs> perfect pumpkin. Like, I was like, I'm not even going to carve this because it's so beautiful. Too pretty to carve. Um, And now I, like, don't want to get rid of it. Mm. But also, I don't know. So I also have been hearing about, like, farms where you can go and you can give pumpkins for pigs. So I'm trying to find a farm where I could do that so I'm not mm. just throwing it away. We feed it to the deer outside. Ooh, so we, like, break them open call. in, yeah. like, the where we know the deer come. And then <gasps> they come and eat them, like, usually around this week when it starts to get cold and they start yeah. running low on food. Oh, perfect. Yeah, that's Maybe a lot I'll of fun. Maybe I'll just feed your deer. Yeah. Because I only have, like, five pumpkins mm-hmm. on my front porch right now. Right. And I need to do something with them. But sure. I don't want to just throw them in the yard. Because then I'm going to get a pumpkin patch next year. That would be a delight, actually. <laughs> my deer will eat them. I never get a pumpkin patch, and I always really? throw them in the yard. Hmm. All right. Maybe my fears are unfounded. Yes. Um, but we're not here to talk about pumpkins. <laughs> we're here to talk about herstory. On the rocks. With Katie. And Allie. This is a podcast where we talk about famous women in history. We talk about good women and bad women and fictional women and non-fictional women from all times and places because women have nuance. <laughs> but keep in mind, we are drinking the entire time. But we are not historians. Definitely not. I... I'm never more keenly aware of that than when we do someone like from the, I don't know, like a queen of any hard period of time, just any intense period of time. I'm like, wow, I am so ignorant. Well, I think it's just (laughs) the names and places with weird spellings. And I'm like, wow, I know literally only about America. Right. And then it'll be like, well, you know, Sir Thomas Wolsey, <laughs> you know what he did. And I'm like, I don't, I don't know what I he don't did. Know what Could he you did. actually please talk? Yeah. <laughs> Explain this to me like I'm five. <laughs> but yeah, uh, I think we're going to have a great night talking about two pretty fun ladies. This is exciting. And also, if we were to do it in the right order, it'd be my name. I know. I can't Catherine believe Elizabeth. a Catherine Elizabeth. Catherine with a C, though. You're Catherine with a K. Not quite serendipitous. Which is funny, though, because when she spelled her name like Katerin, she yeah. spelled it with a K. Oh, sometimes. Sometimes. Sometimes, but not always. But I think Catherine had of Aragon had hers with a K, so they were like, and, and K- that was the K. Catholic- Howard was a K. Yeah. And I think Catherine with a K is the Catholic spelling? I don't know. Or is it the Jewish spelling? I don't know. Don't know. <laughs> Anyways, can't, I can't remember. I can't even spell my own name. <laughs> don't ask me about etymology of other names. Um, but while you're about to embark on this podcast with us, we know that you're busy you are looking up the etymology of your yes (laughs) did it get changed spelling yes when you moved from one country to another what happened to it um so you're busy doing that you don't want to open up two web browsers because you have a thing this is slow computer slow computer internet settings are off taking up too much time uh maybe you're in a cabin in alaska who knows so what we're going to do for you is we're going to describe what these women look like so you don't have to waste your precious precious time we're going to get a little physical, physical. Allie, who are you doing and what does she look like? I am doing Elizabeth, who went by Lizzie mm. McGee. She is a white woman born in the mid-1800s, and she looks as such she, <laughs> in the United States. She has a strong, straight brow with thin lips and a very straight nose. Her face is oval. Um, in young photos of her, she has this, like, really clear skin. Uh-huh. Um, but she wore her hair, like, curly and up and parted in the middle. 
But the most famous photo of her is in her older years. And it's a complete side profile. She's wearing a V-neck black dress, almost like a graduation gown ah. style. Mm-hmm. Um, and she has this curly white hair short white hair and a slight smirk on her face okay and that is what elizabeth (laughs) mcgee looks like and i think it's mcgee some of the videos pronounce it as maggie because it's spelled like maggie but most of them said mcgee and i think it's a last name so you go mcgee okay yeah i would think so who cares who cares Um, oh, we're all, all to. of her living relatives and <laughs> everyone invested literally in this story. me and you uh, <laughs> we should care we're supposed to care i do i do i do who are you doing and what does she look like i am doing Catherine parr mm. the sixth and final wife of henry the eighth do you want to know how i got this far sorry Catherine parr was a classic beauty for her time period she had auburn red hair sincere brown eyes very pale skin and delicate features and portraits of her are all very consistent and it's always noted that they were true to life in any like documentary or thing written about her which i think is so interesting um so not a lot of artists no pretty filters no no (laughs) filters on these paintings and no bribing the portraiter got it got it got it got it there's no anna cleaves situation no (laughs) (laughs) so all of her portraits are pretty true to life and we do know that her hair was definitely auburn red because we still have locks of it wowza which I'll get into. Wow. So it's <laughs> weird how we got him. <laughs> I don't want to know. <laughs> All right. So do you want to know what you're drinking? I do. What a lovely color. Oh, it's beautiful. It's like a blackberry color. Mm-hmm. Um, first, thank you, Rebecca Denauer, yes. for suggesting this person. This is your second request of the season. You've sent over so many requests because you're such a great longtime listener. Mm-hmm. We love having you so much. And thank you because this is such a fun story. Mm-hmm. Yes. So what's in it? So this drink is called uh, Do Not Pass Go. Do Not Collect $200. <laughs> and it is hypnotic, which we don't use a lot. <laughs> That's not 2005. <laughs> I needed hypnotic in it. Uh, cranberry juice, vodka, vodka, creme de. <laughs> I'm having a bad day. I'm gonna. I'm gonna. Even, I'm gonna say I'm all wrong. Hypnote Q, cranberry, vodka, creme de cassis. No, I'm saying I'm all wrong. <laughs> I'm saying I'm wrong on purpose. And blueberries. Perfect. Cheers. Lots of blueberries. <laughs> oh, and guys, it has to be in a martini glass. This is Monopoly. We're classy. Yeah, we're classy. We have monocles on. Monocle. God damn it. Mmm. It's tart. Very tart, but but on the way back of the tongue. Yeah. Like, Interesting. Mm. I like it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like the tartness. I think it's good. I would say if it had a little, like, slightly less syrup. It's a little too syrupy for me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe, like... More vodka, less uh, creme. <laughs> a rough day. Everything's going to be fine. We're going to get through this, guys. We are. Don't worry. One story at a time. And there's only two stories, so <laughs> we'll be fine. So I got information for this story from Wikipedia, the New York Times, a whole bunch of YouTube videos, but specifically one called The Strange History Behind Monopoly. There's a novel written about the history of Monopoly as well, which I read several sections of. So that's where my info's from. What do you know (laughs) about Elizabeth McGee? Guessing she invented Scrabble? Yep, that was it. Just kidding. Sorry. Monopoly. (laughs) It was sorry. (laughs) I'm guessing she invented Monopoly 
which is surprising because I would absolutely think that it was invented by a man. Mm-hmm. Um, so, or maybe she was just a part of it. Mm-hmm. I don't know. This is, I'm very curious to see how exactly she's connected because obviously that's a big part of her story. <laughs> it's like the part of her story. Yes. No, she's so cool. There's so many avenues of her life. I was really excited to research. Oh, cool. So we're getting into this. Right. Everybody get ready to roll your <laughs> die and sit down to three hours of family trauma. <laughs> getting started. Never made it through a whole game. Not once in really? my life. Nope. Never. I love Monopoly. I also I love have it. not played it since the nor'easter of oh, again sure. 2005. Sure, sure, sure. <laughs> so that's why there's hypnotic <laughs> yeah. in this. Um, okay, so do you have a favorite Monopoly piece? I want to start here. Uh, the only one I can really think of. No, I like the iron. I like the okay. iron and the top hat. The okay. iron just because it's fucking weird. Yeah, that is weird. And I like that it's there. <laughs> um, but yeah, the top hat because you kind of put on your finger. Well, that's the thimble too. <laughs> oh, yeah, there's a thimble. I usually play with the thimble or the dog. Oh, that's right. There's a dog. Mm-hmm. The little Scotty dog. Yeah, I'm really blanking. But yeah, I always like the iron was just strange. And of course, the top hat is just fun. So okay. Too. Do you have a favorite like color monopoly like to get around the board? You haven't played in a while. I love the light blues. Everybody, you're gonna say I'm crazy because that's on the cheap side of the board, but you can win with a light blue monopoly. Okay. I just want everybody to know. I have no idea. Okay, no idea. <laughs> I literally have not played. Um, I'm pretty sure the reds are the most valuable, like Kentucky Avenue. Okay. I think because it. Well, I shouldn't say most valuable. It gets landed on the most. I think. Okay. I think I could be wrong. I'm not a, a monopoly professional, but I do play regularly with my kids no question yeah how many people minimum do you need to play with two two okay so mm. you can play with two people you can uh the game goes a lot quicker oh well that's when you good. play with two okay. people because like literally every turn you're buying a property so the board is bought up pretty quickly because it's just okay. back forth back forth back forth okay so maybe i'll mm. make casey play with me yeah it's more fun if you have a third because then two of you can start making deals and gang up on the <gasps> other one because that's like the point of the game but it wasn't the original point of the game oh okay which is gonna lead us back to what we're talking about. Yes, <laughs> Lizzie. <laughs> the story repeated for decades and even tucked inside of Monopoly boxes that even I have repeated on this show incorrectly is that an unemployed man named Charles Darrow dreamed up Monopoly in his basement working night after night. He tried to sell to the Parker brothers, and they turned him down, saying the game is too confusing, and asked him to change a whole bunch of things. He took it, changed it, and then because of the Great Depression, people were so obsessed with money that the game took off and it started selling like wildfire. And then his invention was bought by the Parker brothers and saved both of them from the brink of destruction. This is not true. (gasps) (laughs) This is not true. that's the story literally in the box? It was in the box. Parker brothers no longer is a company. Really? Hasbro bought them and a couple other board game uh, industries. Uh, Just a few years ago, I want to say less than a decade, Hasbro has owned all of those games. So they lied. They lied, and they knew they were lying. The deviousness. So spicy. Mm. All right. Let's talk about Elizabeth. She was born in Illinois in 1866, the the year the Civil War ended, Mm. to Mary Jane and James K. McGee. Her dad was a newspaper publisher and an abolitionist. Yeah. Who accompanied Abe Lincoln as he traveled around Illinois in the late 1850s debating politics with Stephen Douglas. (laughs) So her dad is big name drop. (laughs) Don't show off or anything. (laughs) 
Her dad gained a reputation as a rousing speaker who would travel from place to place to get people to support specific political views. She said, I have often been called a chip off the old block, which I consider quite a compliment, for I am proud of my father being the kind of old block he is. Oh, that's so cute. cute. (laughs) Because her dad was also part owner of the paper that he wrote for, Elizabeth was exposed to journalism at a very early age. She watched and listened to the Illinois legislature as her father ran for politics on an anti-monopoly campaign. He did not win, Okay, but her dad was very into economics. Very into economics. We don't know much about her early life, but we do know that by the 1880s, her family moved to Maryland. Really? <laughs> and then like so like southern maryland like the maryland dc county okay like, um northern dc okay um bethesda oh, <laughs> one might say <laughs> <laughs> so she's there and this is the if it was 1880 exactly she would have been 14 but if it's 1889 she's early 20s so okay. they just said in the 1880s she's coming in to, the 80s in her teens yeah ish (laughs) so she while she's living i'm gonna say here (laughs) she gets a job as a stenographer typist at the dead letter office have you ever heard of this the dead letters office this is an office where they send all the envelopes where the they couldn't read the address or the return address and then the people at the dead letter office attempt to read it or open it to find information to figure out where to send it. Like little detectives. Yeah. I don't know why I picture the people as little themselves. (laughs) They're like on their little (laughs) typewriters, like little mysteries on their QWERTY boards. Oh my gosh. If I were making like a Zootopia movie about this, they'd be played by mice. Oh, that's adorable. Yeah. I really like that. Mm. Okay. (laughs) So that's what she's doing for a living, which is not something women did back then. But stenography and typing was a growing profession for women after the civil war because a lot of men were removed from work either because of death or extreme injury Mm -hmm. or like a number of other reasons and also the typewriter is gaining commercial popularity leaving people to ponder this strange new women that would sit at desks and type all day (laughs) on random keys (laughs) by the age of 26 elizabeth received a patent for her invention that made typewriting easier by allowing paper to go through the rollers. <gasps> so she is 26 years old. Less than 1% of the patents in the United States are held by women, and she gets one for her invention. That is so cool. On the typewriter. Amazing. I know. <sighs> I'm picturing her going, ding, <laughs> ding, and her being like, I have an idea right when it dings. Yeah. Wouldn't that be perfect? That's amazing. So her first accomplishment is as an engineer. <gasps> so cool. So cool. When Elizabeth wasn't at work, she was known as Lizzie to her friends, and she was constantly struggling to have her creativity heard. Mm. At night, she would go after her literary goals. She would write short stories and poetry, and she would also perform as a player in the D.C. theater. (gasps) She would perform on stage in comedic roles and was praised for being big and bold, even though she was like a tiny person. She She was was a tiny mouse. Yeah, she's petite. She's a mouse, actually. (laughs) It was said that she would have audiences in large halls exploding in laughter at her comical renditions of the female characters she was doing. People love that. Think she's so funny. She's so smart and she's so funny. 
That's an, now I'm picturing like Kate Micucci. Do you remember her from a uh, Garfunkel and Oates? I don't know. Like this small, like brown haired woman. That's who I'm picturing doing all of this. Perfect. Keep that in your head. Yeah. I like that. I can't believe that she, she's just so active. Yeah. I imagine like myself seeing her and being like, I want to be her friend. Yeah. She <laughs> seems cool. And she had a lot of friends. She was popular. I'm sure she popular was. Popular person. <laughs> Elizabeth was also an outspoken part of the feminist movement and of Georgism. A Georgist is an economic movement. I'm going to try to explain it, but I'm a fucking idiot. <laughs> so <laughs> at the time it was known as the single tax movement and it was an economic belief that is people should own their own personal value. You should be able to have your own stuff for yourself, but the economic taxes should derive from the land, natural resources, common urban locations, all of that stuff that gets taxed should be split equally among the people. So it's like, you know how in communism, everything is split and uh -huh. in capitalism, everything is hoarded, I'll say. Yeah. It's like this mixture of like where you should be allowed to have private property, but also these public entities should be split equally among the people. Okay. So rather than like... It was like, it would be like everyone pays the same amount for like water. Right. It was no weird. It was like instead of income taxes, we do only public service taxes. Okay. It was, okay. it was very interesting. So interesting. I, I wasn't going to look too much into it because no matter how I explained it, it was going to be wrong. So if yeah. you are good at economics and want to explain Georgism, please, I look forward to please an email. <laughs> um, but in short, it was like a universal tax that could be used. And a lot of progressive political leaders at the time, right after the Civil War, thought this was a great idea because it leveled the playing field for people of color. Mm -hmm. It leveled the playing field for women um, and, and different socioeconomic classes because it's taxing like landowners, mm -hmm. like the wealthy, you know? Yeah. So it's like going after um, different people or not going after them, asking them to pay their share. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so furthermore, she believed that women were as capable as men in inventing businesses and in other personal areas. And in the 1800s, this belief was considered both novel and radical. As we know, she worked as a stenographer. She made around $10 a week or something, which kind of wasn't enough for her to support herself. She was the head of her own household, though, and she saved up money as much as she could. And she did end up buying a house, which was difficult mm -hmm. because you couldn't really support yourself on a female salary right. back then. She worked as a reporter also for a short time in the early 1900s and used her platform to show the struggle of being a woman trying to support herself. In order to do this and get the U.S.'s attention, she brought forward an advertisement of herself auctioning herself off as a young woman American slave looking for a husband. She said, I'm not beautiful, but very attractive, feature full of character, strength, very truly feminine. She's pretty much saying marriage is slavery. Like <laughs> I will sell myself to the highest bidder. Oh in auction. <laughs> she puts this in the newspaper, like Craigslist for Elizabeth McGee. <laughs> I can't believe that. I don't. I can't even believe they ran that. Yeah, yeah. Who approved that in the <laughs> office? Who was like, "All right, Lizzie, yeah. you got it. You 
got it, this became the talk of the town because it emphasized the fact that the only people who were actually free were white men Mm -hmm. and specifically wealthy white men uh that were property owners. Um, (laughs) This ad spread rapidly and the news and gossip columns around the country ate it up. (laughs) And through this, Elizabeth Elizabeth was made, uh, she made a name for herself as a proud and outspoken feminist. This quickly became news, and when people asked her about it or interviewed about it in the street, she said, we are not machines. Girls have minds, desires, hopes, and ambitions. Plainly said, girl. (laughs) Go for it. (laughs) Elizabeth first made uh, the game known as the Landlord Game. It was popular among her friends in Maryland, and it was 1903 when she did this, and she applied for a U.S. patent from the office for the game. She was granted U.S. patent 748626. I'm going to say that again. She was granted (laughs) a patent for the landlord game in 1904. This is a woman receiving her second overall patent. So cool. In an interview about her game, Elizabeth said it may as well be called the game of life as it contains all the elements of success and failures in the real world. The landlord game was designed to demonstrate the economic effects of land monopolization, and it used land value and tax value as a remedy for it. Originally, the goal of the game was simply to obtain wealth, but then she revised it and got a new patent where the game had two plays. You could play it two ways. Mm -hmm. There were two sets of rules. One... um, is the game we kind of know as Monopoly, where the goal is to own as much industry and business as possible to kick everybody out of the game. And the other, the anti-Monopoly setup, known as Prosperity, the goal was to create and produce industries with your opponents. And she wanted to teach people that capitalism is bad. (laughs) So interesting she's trying she's like making an educational board game about like play it like this and then play it like this and see how the board was more successful in the end how many people are happy because i recently played for the first time ever a board game where everybody worked together i never played a board game like that before in my life and it was so fun i absolutely loved it Mm -hmm. it was also great because it was much easier to like learn the rules of the game when you were working together. So like the people who knew the rules, it didn't feel like they were out to get you, hmm. which was so nice. <laughs> it It's really nice. And it, I like the idea that there's two sets of gameplay. Like that's how yeah. video games are. Like yes. you get to pick, do I want to be in like competition zone or mm-hmm. build zone or this, mm-hmm. like that happens on what's that stupid game Minecraft. with all the blocks. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Minecraft. You can play peaceful like peaceful mode (laughs) and that's what like a lot of people like to do because it's more fun you get to see your progress that is so interesting she did another really interesting thing in the layout of her game most games were linear you started you played till the board end and you stopped and she decided what if we made a game that looked like a town square and it just kept going Uh, forever (laughs) and like so she is like the originator of the the circular board game where you go around and around and around she's the first person to like do that and patent it i can't believe that that's (laughs) insane 
that's what I think of as a board game. Yeah, absolutely. Like I've played linear games. Like I would say Candyland's a linear game. Like shoots it goes and ladders. One, yeah, linear game. Right. Mm-hmm. This is like circle. Cir- like sorry is a circular game. Yeah. Um. So very cool. In eighteen oh six, Elizabeth. Sorry, nineteen oh six. We're in the nineteen hundreds. <laughs> in nineteen oh six. Oh wait. Also, her original board on the four corners had a poor house, a public park, so public parking, a jail, and then one corner in script said "Go to jail." Still says it today. Wow. Still like that. Those are like one of her lasting things. Like she wrote that on her board, and it is on the board. Like, you cannot tell me you invented this game. Yeah, you can't. You're a liar. You're like, you're a liar. (laughs) Wow. Okay. Okay. So, in 1906, Elizabeth moved to Chicago, where she and a friend form an economic game company. She's starting a board game company to self-publish her own board game, which was played in a square fashion. Um... Sometime between when she moves to Chicago in 1906 and 1910, she actually does get married to a man named Albert Wallace Phillips. He, she's 44, which is old for a woman to get married at yeah. this time. Mm-hmm. And he's, I think, 10 years her senior. So he's mm-hmm. in his 50s. And this is kind of an ironic marriage because she's an old maid who's critical of marriage as slavery mm-hmm. he had openly written about being skeptical of marriage so they're <laughs> like a likely unlikely couple you know what i mean yeah. and the couple never has any children so they're just like partners up until he dies and i think he dies maybe nine years before her here's the history of the game because that's what we really want to know about mm-hmm. we want to know about monopoly <laughs> as much as we love your life lizzie we gotta yeah. know about the game in the 20th century board games were becoming increasingly popular as people had more and more leisure time with their family mm. they had electricity in their homes so they could get up earlier stay up later everybody just had more hours on their hands um before the landlord game parker brothers had bought a humorous card game from her called mock trial so they already have a set up account okay. with her. So Lizzie has her patent on this game. She publishes the game. 19, so the patent's from 1904. She publishes the game by herself with her own little company. Mm-hmm. She goes to Parker Brothers. Um, like around the same time she gets married um, with the help of her husband. And they reject it. Eventually, other people learn about the game. And they start to play it. Uh, people are like, oh, this is fun. And they start to change the rules. What we know now is house rules. <gasps> like you put, you know, the money yeah. on free parking or, you know, we don't, uh, accuse somebody of a monopoly until you know, whatever. We, you don't accuse anybody of a monopoly. That's a made up <laughs> rule. But we don't do such and such until we've been around the board three times. Or like, you know, there's house rules that like extend or shorten the game. Yeah. So people start playing this game with their own rules and start kind of giving it nicknames. Nicknames like finance and auction and monopoly. <laughs> After Lizzie gets married, she updates the game with street names <gasps> and new rules under a new patent. Um, and goes to Parker Brothers again. And they tell her, no, it's too difficult. People won't understand it. Then a guy named Dan Lehman plays the game with his friends, the Funds, in ni- the 1930s. She's still alive in the 1930s, by the way. This is the 1930s. She's alive. They can't patent the game because they were like, oh, this is all protected under Lizzie's copyright rules. So they named the game Finance, Add Community Chess, The Railroad, and the Get Out of Jail for Money card. Uh Um, 
and they publish it under Nap Electron Games or something for $200. Then a guy named Pete, who's friends with the guy named Dan, teaches a woman named Ruth. I'm shortening everything I learned. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and Ruth goes to Atlantic City, and she made, makes her own version of the game with all Atlantic City street names, which is the street names that we have now. Okay. So I want to point out another woman named all those streets. Yes. So she <laughs> named up with the game. This woman, Ruth, named all the streets. <clears throat> um, sh- Ruth gets introduced to a guy named Charles, who introduces her to another man named Charles, and this <laughs> is Charles Darrow. Okay, this so is this, the, is, this uh, is Beef Boy. Beef Guy, okay. Uh, he tries to publish the game as Monopoly with some of his own rules. He adds the Go Arrow uh-huh. graphic. Okay, um, <laughs> big whoop. Jesus Christ. <laughs> go, good job, buddy. <laughs> um, and goes to Parker Brothers to sell it, and they say, no, it's too hard. Then, shortly after, what's happening in the Northeast is that the ivory towers are growing. Uh-huh. You've got... The Harvard men, uh-huh. you know, who are playing finance board games uh-huh. and who want this game. And in Christmas of 1934, Charles, like, sells out of this game. And Parker Brothers is like, okay, 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 okay. Let's, let's my arm. give it another look. Let's give it another look. So they um, buy it from Charles as a game. And he signs a contract where he's going to get royalties, obviously, from the game but then they find out that lizzie owns the original patent and they go to charles and kind of make up a story and ask him to sign to this story that this is what happened so to protect themselves they also start going and buying other versions of the game they buy the finance game from the fun boys Mm -hmm. they go to lizzie and they buy her game landlord game she's so excited she was like, oh, my gosh, everybody's going to learn about economics. I like this is what I've always dreamed of. And she sells it to them for five hundred dollars. Five hundred dollars. She sells the landlord game to them that she owns. <laughs> but she was like, this is my, my whole dream is to teach people about economics. And it's coming true. <sighs> but then she finds out that Charles is getting royalties for inventing this game. So with her connections to the newspaper, Elizabeth goes to the D.C. newspaper and is super critical of Charles and the Parker brothers. She speaks out about the similarities of the game. She shows them her games. And the article, like, talks about the fact that Elizabeth, over her lifetime, spent more making the game than the $500 Parker brothers gave her. Oh, my God. When she invented the game. That's ridiculous. And, like, she loved making games. Not just Monopoly. She had other games under her business, including Bargain Day, which is where where shoppers would go into a department store and they'd try to bargain to get certain things. (laughs) And she had one called Kingsmen, which was an abstract abstract, um, strategy game. And Parker Brothers, because they knew she was pissed, would buy these games from her to keep her from, like, boiling over. They would just, like, buy whatever games she made, shove her some money and then like keep pumping money to charles he became the first millionaire of board game fame no yeah (laughs) in the gut right (sighs) not only though did he get his board game from lizzie and did he get his street names 
from Ruth. But when he's getting ready to pitch it. But he can't even play. (laughs) But he can't. But he doesn't even know the rules. (laughs) Do you even know where Boardwalk and Park Place is, you idiot? They're the dark blue ones. Um, He is setting up the game, getting ready to go, and his niece. So we got the names from Ruth. We've got the whole entire board game from Lizzie. His niece goes, do you know what would be fun if all the game pieces were pieces off of a child's charm bracelet? Wouldn't this motherfucker. Wouldn't that be fun? His little niece gave him the idea of the most iconic part of the game. His little girl niece. Put my put my charm bracelet. That's the pieces. So he did create a die cast iron purse, lantern, race car, thimble, shoe, top hat, battleship, cannon, and rocking horse. Those are the original pieces. Okay. They've been shifted out over the years. I have an entire history that I go through with my classroom students over this because we play Monopoly every year. But it is just every single good idea that makes the game fun. Like, I've been to Atlantic City. I've been to those streets. I love the idea that the game goes on forever. I love that the World Series Monopoly winner is like, oh, I only play with the horse. (laughs) I only play with the blah, blah, blah. The last time I played with this, I lost this much money. It's like a, they have like a thing that if they're going up against another person who plays with their piece, they're like, I can't play with another piece. (laughs) I like the most iconic parts of the game were all ideas from women. Yeah. And that's he, wild. He's a millionaire. Hate <laughs> him. <laughs> uh-huh. Elizabeth died at the age of 81 in uh, 1948. She was buried with her husband, who had been passed for about nine years at that point. So she was a widow. Um, at her death, she wasn't credi- credited with the impact of her game. And she died not knowing that she would make the most important and popular board game in American history. But. An economics professor in 1970s created a board game called Anti-Monopoly. And he, his name is Ralph Anspach. We're going to like him. Uh, he is getting sued by Parker Brothers for making Anti-Monopoly. And when he looks into why he can't get a patent for Anti-Monopoly, he finds the landlord game. I was going to say, is it because of the other way you play uh-huh. the landlord game? It's the other way you play Monopoly. Okay. He brought this to court and was like, you guys are suing me? Yeah. You (laughs) stole this game from a woman. And he wrote a piece called The Monopoly Lie. Subsequently, Elizabeth's invention was given more attention and research, and she was posthumously given credit for her work. But the Parker brothers never gave her credit for the game or talked about her contributions. Serves you right. You went out of business. You fucks. It was only after her death that the impact of Elizabeth that she had on American culture and life began to be appreciated. I mean, we've been doing this podcast for five years, and I absolutely know that I mentioned the way Monopoly was made before, and it was incorrect. Yeah, that's crazy. That is, it's just in our fabric. Right. It's like in the zeitgeist of American culture. Like, it was made during this guy, during the Great Depression, blah, blah, blah. Um, But here's some of the things she did. Not only... Did she help popularize the infinite board game play? 
Her board game not only set the groundwork for like the most famous board game in the United States, not only was she competing against the government for that capitalism is a bad idea, but she was an engineer. She was a woman in the 1800s and 1900, early 1900s with two patents. She was a comedian. Mm -hmm. She was a writer. She was a journalist. And she was an inventor. I just think she's so cool. She's very cool. She did all that stuff and died with none of it. People like who worked at her stenography office were like, oh, yeah, she's that widow who loves to talk about board games. <laughs> that's like at the end of her life. That's what they knew about her. Oh, my gosh. She should have been a multimillionaire. <laughs> yeah, she should have been living on fucking Park Avenue. Right. Exactly. That's insane. Yeah. So that is <laughs> if you wanted to be depressed today. But thank you, Albert. Albert's his name, right? Whose name? No, Ralph. Ralph, the economics professor. Yeah. Thank you. Ralph. Thank you. I know you only looked into it because Parker Brothers was suing you, but I really, <laughs> I really appreciate that you found it and then rubbed it in their face. And now Agreed. we all know. A hero. And Hasbro <laughs> does not publish the story about Charles in the board game. Do they publish her story? No. Well, There's no story in there right now. But they did right make, now. but they did make a Miss Monopoly, which is so fun to play. Ooh, okay. Because if you're a girl, you get more money to start because they're trying to show you what it's like to be a man. <laughs> It's so fun. My dad was like, this is such an unfair game. And I was like, you mean like everything? You like life, dad? <laughs> like every, all the streets are the businesses that women invented. So like one of the, one of the streets is Spanx. Oh, and like, that's it's so cool. fun. That's I love fun. it. I, my girls got it for Christmas a couple years ago. And it's, that's very cool. <laughs> and then like you pick up a card and it's like, if you're a boy, you lose a turn. <laughs> <laughs> So Hasbro has tried. Perfect. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Okay. All right. Let's get another drink and get into our next story. Catherine Parr. We're back. Part two. New drink. This is so fun. <laughs> fun cocktail bright green we have bright colors this week <laughs> i'm really happy about it um so do you want to know what it is i do what's it called okay so this is called survived <laughs> survived you have to really get into survived. it <laughs> um so it is vanilla ice cream vodka maraschino cherry liqueur and creme de menthe and you blend it all together put whipped cream on top put a cherry on top and cheers to Sazzle 42 for Woo! recommending Catherine Parr. <laughs> I think, um, wow, I really like it. Yeah. I thought it would be too sweet. And it's great. It's so minty fresh. Yeah. Mm. I <sighs> wish the cherry was coming through more, but maybe it will the more I drink it. I feel like I just brush my teeth. I also feel like I can like, there's like so much like vodka and liqueur in this that's great that's the like, way i like to get wasted <laughs> good mm. um also i think sazzle 42 originally requested the musical six i think so and we've been slowly chipping away yeah just accrediting everyone to you Af every <laughs> single one except for Catherine. we started all of them after that Catherine of aragon's the only one we did before sazzle was like it's time for the musical six which is funny because i think the only one you've done is Catherine howard no, I also did Amblin. Or you, you did, did Amblin? Yeah, I did Amblin. I, I thought think. I did Amblin. No. Wait. No. 
You did Anne Boleyn. Yeah, I did Anne Boleyn <laughs> and Catherine Howard because they're cousins. Right. I don't know why I thought I did Anne Boleyn. Because the ones from a long time ago that I reference all the time, I can't remember if you or I did it. Mm-hmm. Because it's like I do, I go back and re-listen to it and edit it multiple times. Yeah. So it's like at some point it just the voice is weaves together. together in my brain. I'm like, I don't know who said what or when, but it happened. But I yeah, also- so we're, we're, what, we're down to we haven't done Jane Seymour or Anne of Cleves. Yeah, that's it. Wait. Jane Seymour. Mm-hmm. She's the one died. Died. <laughs> right, 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 right. I talk about her in my story. Yeah. I'm an idiot. Um, but anyways, yeah. I think that blending this with ice cream made it softer. I love it. I'm very much enjoying it. Yeah. Okay. Perfect part. What All right. I, what do I know? What do you know about survive? <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. I can't wait to do this all night. Um, So Catherine Parr is the last wife of Henry VIII. They were married for maybe like five years or so. It's kind of short lived. All the last wives were kind of short lived. Catherine of Aragon was the only really long wife. Um, I know that she died like shortly after he died. I don't think it was too long that she lived after he died. She didn't have any kids or if she I don't know if she had kids but they would have died immediately but I don't think she had any kids because I think Edward became king and then dies and then Mary becomes queen and then oh Jane for like a day and then Mary becomes queen and dies and then Anne Boleyn's daughter Queen Mary Queen uh, Elizabeth the first the state right below us, Virginia. Mm-hmm. Our state is named after Bloody Marys. Mm-hmm. The state below us is named. But anyway, she becomes the queen. So I'm, I'm curious as to how the daughters treated the and son treated uh, their stepmom. Well, let me tell you. It's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Good. That's the thing. I, I Because when we did, we've done Bloody Mary. Uh-huh. We've done Queen Elizabeth I, I mm-hmm. think, or no. No, we did the, no, we definitely did. And we did the pirate. Grace O'Malley, who was yeah. in contact with Elizabeth the first. Mm-hmm. We haven't done Lady Jane Grey, but we probably should. Oh, we definitely should. Um, but yeah, I, I found out that those two, Mary and um, Queen Elizabeth the first, actually kind of respected each other in the end. It was like yep. we're kind of step, we're in this boat together. Our dad's a fucking psycho. Yep. All right. Okay, so, tell me the story. That was so long winded. My sources are Wikipedia. I watched a YouTube video. Should reference the company. It was the first one that popped up. Um, and then the Rex Factor podcast. I, this podcast is done by two guys, British guys, and they go through every single monarch in order, no matter how short-lived they were. And then they rate them on all these different scales. Nice. I loved it. These two guys are so freaking charming. And the main question they ask is, do they have the Rex Factor? <laughs> It's so good. Beautiful. I would really, honestly, listening to this episode made me want to go back and start from the beginning. And I feel like it's such a great way of getting English history, like, in your head, you know? Oh, yeah. Because now, like, everything is, like, once, I feel like once you line it up, it kind of just, like, makes sense, you know? So, anyways. You won't forget the Millard Fillmore's, one might say. Exactly. So, anyway. So, yeah. That was a great podcast to listen to. The hosts were so charming and fun. I loved them. (laughs) Okay, let's get into it. <laughs> Catherine Parr was born sometime in August 1512. <laughs> Good job, Catherine. Really just end of summer 1512. <laughs> she was the eldest child of Sir Thomas Parr, Lord of the Manor of Kendal in Westmoreland, now in Cumbria, 
and Maud Green. She would go on to have two siblings, William and Anne. William and Anne. <laughs> and a f- this is crazy. A few years before Catherine was even born, in 1509, her father was knighted by his future son-in-law, King Henry VIII. Okay, how do you feel at... at <laughs> this is jumping ahead. But how do you feel when somebody who keeps kicking out wives tries to marry your daughter? Well, he, does, he dies pretty early on, oh, so he okay. doesn't have an opinion. He doesn't know. He doesn't know. He may have had an opinion, but it was up in the clouds. Exactly. Or down in hell. Who knows um, where he is. But I don't think it would be really super positive because <laughs> not only was he close with King Henry, but Maud was a lady in waiting for Queen Catherine of Aragon. Whoa. The couple was incredibly close with the royal couple because I do want to remind everyone, Catherine and Henry were a happily married couple for like 30 for years a long time <laughs> it was so long before he got like a open Injured. wound leg <laughs> like he turned into a tyrant he fell off of like, a horse and damaged his brain i he was concussed cannot emphasize this enough that like his first marriage lasted for so long everyone loved catherine of aragon and he was so hot yeah super and like hot. an athlete he, yes he could like play tennis so yeah. that is the king <laughs> that knights catherine parr's father sure 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 and so she's a lady-in-waiting for Queen Catherine. They're so close that Catherine of Aragon is Catherine Parr's godmother. So that is who she is named after. Her godmother and her husband's first wife. That is crazy! You are welcome for your next fun fact to throw into cocktail party. <laughs> what a full circle moment. So now he's married. Okay. He married cousins in Anne Boleyn uh-huh. and Kate uh-huh. Howard. Uh-huh. And he married. Godmother, goddaughter. Oh, Henry, you dog. You dog. <laughs> you dog. Crazy. But even though they were favored by the king and queen, they were still classified as gentry rather than nobility. They were not born into their place in society. If I was only a gentry. <laughs> My God, please. The Parr family had worked very hard for years to become wealthy landowners who infiltrated the royal household through patronage and good marriage. Infiltrated. Infiltrated. Like, the Pars were not kidding around. They were new money, baby. They were kissing butts and marrying cousins left and right. Perfect. They were playing the game. They yeah. were. They were playing Monopoly. Yeah, they were. Yeah, they were. <laughs> not landlords. <laughs> we are going. <laughs> we're going to marry Pennsylvania Avenue <laughs> to Illinois Avenue at Park Place. So, Sir Thomas Parr dies in 1517 when Catherine is just five years old oh sad but sorry dad he left the family so well off financially like he was very responsible that Maud never had to remarry and the children grew up in comfort also I'm sorry what year does the name Maud come from I feel like it's (laughs) (laughs) that's eternal (laughs) it's always been it's always there it's haunting us um, so because Maud didn't have to go husband hunting, she was allowed to really turn her focus onto her children. And lucky for these kids, Maud was very interested in educating her children, especially the girls. So Catherine and Anne got just as good of an education as their brother, which was obviously not typical. Catherine, of course, learned all the womanly things like needlepoint, dancing, and music. But she was much more interested in the scholarly subjects such as languages and history. 
In fact, she hated needlepoint so much that apparently she told her mother once, my hands are ordained to touch crowns and scepters, not spindles and needles. <laughs> wow. Don't we wish Briar Rose had thought the same thing? I wish. Uh- <laughs> what a good connection. That's my daughter, honestly. My younger daughter is like, I do not deign to do chores in this place. Damn. I am built for better things. <laughs> so, anyways. She goes, when I get home, I must relax a yeah. bit. <laughs> what she says to me. Anyway, so Catherine was extremely intelligent, becoming fluent in Latin, French, Italian. And then when she later became queen, she was like, oh, I should pick up Spanish as well. Um, So she was very good at languages. (laughs) And her, like, so Maud's educational skills became so legendary in the area that other parents would bring their children to her so she could educate them. Oh, this is a Jackie O situation. Yes. Sure. So she had this kind of side gig as <laughs> an educator. But for Catherine, there was obviously a non-negotiable negotiable next step, and that was marriage. So when she's 17 years old, her mother arranged for her to marry 21-year-old Sir Edward Burrow in 1529. Even though her husband was thankfully young, he was not in very good health, and he died just four years later in 1533. So she's a widow. Mm-hmm. And she was never able to inherit his barren title because his father was still alive. And we're not really sure how Catherine felt about her husband, but we do know that her father-in-law was a total dick. <laughs> he was really abusive to her and to his other daughter-in-laws. Like, every girl that married into this family was abused by this man. I don't know why this tyrant was allowed to exist. I mean, I guess because the king also became a tyrant, but... Anyways, but because obviously her husband died prematurely, he didn't have his own like title or land or anything as he hadn't inherited it yet. She was left with nothing. So now she's like, fuck, like I'm a widow. I'm 21. Like I'm like, you know, what's 17. So she's 21 now. And she's like, and I have to start over again. So she goes husband hunting like her mother did not have to do. And she's at her friend's house, Catherine Neville, and she meets this guy, John Neville. Catherine N? Yeah. <laughs> Hi, I'm Catherine P. This is Catherine N. So he's the third Baron Latimer and her father's second cousin. Mm-hmm. Typical. He was <laughs> twice her age. So he's an older man. But this marriage came with two children, John and Margaret, and a title that had some influence with the North. Because with this marriage, she was officially Lady Latimer. This is what I'm talking about. The pars like to marry up. It seems like after not really getting anything out of the first marriage, she was like, I'm going to make the second marriage really count. Like she was very strategic with what she wanted to do. But it also like, you know, she was like, I just want the package set up for me. She's yeah. like, I don't want to start from scratch. I'm already a widow. So like, I don't really want like, the first marriage love bloom with the babies running around. She's like, I want kids ready. I want the money ready. I want the title ready. Let's do this. <laughs> she was very pragmatic. She's already had the marriage cherry popped. Not yeah. the sexual cherry. The marriage cherry. The marriage it's, cherry. And popped. the sexual cherry. Everything all is popped. It's, popped. it's all popping off. It doesn't matter. It's um, time to just, like, I need to survive yeah. at this point. Exactly. Survive. So <laughs> Survive. <laughs> I honestly, I want to know how you got this far. <laughs> and this is it. So, and this is interesting because this was totally done by her. 
They mm. met through a mutual friend. Her mother has already passed away by this time. So she did this all herself. Did she all the arrangements. She her own marriage yeah, off. Yeah, she does. Excuse me, I'm going to marriage myself off. And she didn't do it. And because she chose him, she did actually like him. Okay. They enjoyed each other's company. And we know that she had affection for him because she kept his personal New Testament with her until the day that she died. Like, she did have affection towards him. Like, we know that. And she always talked about him. Because she carried around his Bible. Because she survived. <laughs> um, they didn't have any children together, but Catherine proved to be a great stepmother to his two children. It seemed like everything was going well. And everything is going to plan until Henry VIII uprooted the religious life of everyone in England by annulling his first marriage to Catherine of Aragon and marrying Anne Boleyn. Catholics be damned! So she actually is already on her second husband before he's on his second wife. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Um, Nice, Jane! (laughs) That's a Jane. Jane. Catherine. Catherine. Jane Seymour is the middle one. This whole situation resulted in something called the Pilgrimage of Grace in the October of 1536. So this is basically a mass rebellion in protest of Henry splitting from the Catholic Church and forming the Church of England. Obviously, when you uproot people's religious lives, it makes them pretty upset. Sure. This rebellion gained steam by traveling around and recruiting or sometimes forcing nobles to join their cause. Also, like, maybe the Catholic Church should let people get divorced. Yes. (laughs) Like, obviously. I mean, he was making a political human rights statement, but, like, yeah. for the wrong reasons. Yes. So some of the nobles joined willingly, and others said they felt pressured to do so because who would say no to 10,000 angry rebels on their doorstep? Not me. Soon they came to the Latimer household. There are a few versions of what happened next. Some say that he joined enthusiastically. Some say that he needed some convincing. But according to Catherine, he was dragged away against his will to join the rebellion. And I am inclined to believe Catherine because we know that rebels infiltrated her home at Snape Castle. They ransacked the place and imprisoned her and her two stepchildren. I want my home to have a name. <laughs> I'm so jealous. Snape Castle. I'm so jealous of people whose homes have names. <laughs> I know. <laughs> so they held them hostage until Lord Latimer agreed to join the rebellion. So off he goes with the rebellion. This obviously fails, and many of the prominent members and leaders were executed. Mm. Lord Latimer, being a member of the noble class, was obviously on the list to be executed. This is a chopping block situation. mm -hmm. But thankfully, he kept his head because of Catherine. Yay! Catherine told the king about her imprisonment and the ultimatum she was given, her husband was given, but he still, like, wasn't 100% sure. But thankfully, Catherine had a lot of close friends in the castle. She had developed a close relationship with Catherine of Aragon's daughter, Mary I, and her brother and sister were well-respected members of the royal court. So she had a lot of people in the inner circle vouching for her. Lord Latimer was spared, but unfortunately his reputation was ruined. Full tarnished. Tarnished. He spent the next seven years at his estate in the South, well away from his critics. Oh, so, I'm so sorry, sorry, buddy. Your other home. <laughs> Your other name to So It's like England's terrible. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. So he stays in the South, and Catherine kind of goes back and forth between the estate and the castle, uh-huh. um, the royal palace, you know, whatever. Because she would spend time with him, 
and then she'd go to court and visit her brother and sister and her friend, Princess Mary. During this time, she also formed a very close relationship with Sir Thomas Seymour. Stop! Brother of Jane Seymour! And third wife of Henry. Oh my gosh. So these intervening years are pretty crucial because a lot happens. She's weaving a tight web. Yeah. Jane Seymour gives birth to a son and dies in 1537. Edward. Childbed fever. Edward. He marries Anne of Cleves in 1540, King Henry, but quickly has the marriage annulled because he didn't think she was very pretty. (laughs) Then, of course, we have the rebound, the hot young wife, Catherine Howard, who was beheaded in 1542. Because she actually did cheat on him. Yes. Unlike Anne Boleyn. Yes. So Henry is single yet again. Then in 1543, Lord Latimer dies, and Catherine takes this opportunity to join the royal court as a member of Mary's household since the two were old friends. And she wanted to join the royal household to get closer to Sir Thomas Seymour because the two had been writing letters for some time now, and Catherine expressed interest in marrying him. Oh, no. Which she figured would be soon because her husband had been sick for some time. Oh, no. She's back in the castle. Her and Thomas are pretty much engaged. But unfortunately, she catches the eye of the king. Stop it. Stop it. Your goddaughter. The king gets word that she is interested in Thomas. So in a real King David Bathsheba move, he sends <laughs> Front Thomas lines of away. Battle. He sends him away to Brussels under the guise of a promotion. And once he's out of the picture, say under the guise again. That under was the guise. Under the guise. <laughs> Henry proposes to Catherine, and you can't really say no to a king. <laughs> so on July 12th, 1543, Henry VIII married for the sixth and final time at Hampton Court Palace. This union was unique because out of the sixth, this made her the first queen of England also to be queen of Ireland because he'd conquered Ireland in 1542. So that's pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. Catherine's arrival was also special because rather than sowing more chaos like a lot of his marriages did, Catherine's presence provided a sense of stability to the royal household. She was a mature woman, twice widowed, who knew how to conduct herself in the royal court. Hmm. Henry admired her beauty, but also her intelligence and her maturity. He really respected Catherine and the two quickly fell into a nice companionship. I will say, there is something about being a stepmother, being widowed a couple times. It's the maturity that Mm -hmm. he was lacking with Kate Howard, which is why he cut her head off. Like, she was 17. So he is marrying a woman right now and not a child, so it's probably easier to talk to her and seek her advice. Um, I also, uh, side promo, if you go (laughs) to England... Hampton Court Palace is a must. It's I've an, always wanted to see So it. it's not directly in London. Um, so like the Tower of London is there where you'll get like the crown jewels and everything. But if you are willing to take like a small trip, the Hampton Court Palace is life changing. I'd also recommend um, I one time watched a documentary about that. There's like a whole series on Netflix called like the Castles of England. Seen them all. Watch it in the bathtub. Sure. A delight. Mm hmm. It's fantastic. I just, I remember walking up to it and being like, this is bananas. But I also think one of, and I think um, producer told me this, one of his original cardinals or something owned it. Mm -hmm. And then after he like killed them or whatever, he just took it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. That's why it's like Hampton Court and it's not a castle. Yeah. But it is 
I mean, nonstop, the most beautiful place I visited in England with mm-hmm. the most history. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. it hasn't been like overrun with London. Like a lot of yeah. stuff is like Globe Theater and mm-hmm. the castle. Like there's a lot of things where you're like, oh, I but I feel like I'm in New York City. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This is not like that. You yeah. feel embedded in King Henry. Perfect. And he loved it there. Yeah. There are a lot of like really cool touches too to like yeah. the various wives. Yeah. But I think like his daughters didn't go back afterwards. Like yeah. it fell out of, into that. disrepair. They were like, I don't fucking care about yeah. my dad yeah. at this point. He <laughs> killed my mom, honestly. Yeah. And speaking of his daughters and his children. <gasps> They're up. They're up. They're up. <laughs> Lucky for them, she was a great stepmother to them. And she is responsible for reconciling Henry and his relationship with his daughters, like Mary and Elizabeth. She put them back into the line of succession. I, what a great stepmom. I need everyone to know that about Catherine Parr. The reason we have the English history that we do is because of her, because she put them back in the line of succession. Because obviously Edward does not live very long. And also, <laughs> she had already been a stepmom. Yep. She is not interested in marriage bliss and mm-hmm. having a baby and having her baby become king or queen. She does not care about being the star of the show. No. She, what an amazing person. I know. Don't even understand what it's like to be like that. Nope. Don't I, know. I wish I <laughs> was like less selfish. I wish. <laughs> I wish. Um, and she also developed a really good relationship with Henry's son, Edward. So like everybody is just. I feel like there was just a sigh of relief when Catherine Parr came in. It was kind of like, OK, so you're so sane. You're sane. You're bringing people back together. This is great. We can all show up to Thanksgiving, even yeah. though that's not an not English, an English thing. thing. It's not going to happen for another hundred years. <laughs> <laughs> but they just like everybody really trusted her. And then like she took charge of like the kids education. And she was like, my mom did this. I can do this. Like, this is what I want them to learn. This is important. Like, please educate the women in more things than needlepoint. Like <laughs> Henry was even so trusting in Catherine that he made her regent during his 1544 campaign to France, which meant that she was in charge while he was gone. And if he died, she remained in charge until Edward came of age. This is huge. That's he would never would have done that to Kate Howard. No. <laughs> no. She was a toddler. She was, she, a was baby. A, she was a toddler. Yeah. <laughs> she handled provision, finances and musters for Henry's <laughs> French campaign. I don't know what that means. She signed five royal proclamations and maintained constant contact with her lieutenant in the Northern Marches, Lord Shrewsbury, hmm. over the complex and unstable situation with Scotland. She also brought female artists into the castle for the first time ever. So that's recorded. So the first records of female artists being paid for their work in England was because of her. Hmm. And one of her many portraits is by a female artist. That's why Which had so, never been done That's before. why they're so goddamn accurate. Exactly. Um, also, musters. It's generally <laughs> to, to take account of who is present and who is not. So she's roll call, baby. Perfect. And it is thought that her actions as regent, together with her strength of character and noted dignity and later religious convictions, greatly influenced her stepdaughter, Lady Elizabeth, the future Elizabeth I of England. So she's not only single-handedly bringing the family back, to her, back together, She's ruling England, and she is becoming a published author. Get the fuck out of here. Catherine Parr wrote a book? Mm -hmm. So she wrote three books. The first one in 1544 is Psalms or Prayers. 
So this book was just kind of a translation of the Latin Psalms. It was originally published by John Fisher in 1525, and she publishes this one anonymously. Um, she translates it to English, yes? Yes, she, so she translates it to English. That is such a service mm -hmm. because the church was holding on to their goddamn Latin so the common yep. people couldn't read it. Yep. The assholes. Exactly. Sorry, the church. So this is also kind of revealing her Protestant sympathy. Ooh, girl. So Luther religion me. was obviously <laughs> in a really weird place right now. <laughs> and Henry liked that she wasn't a Catholic, but she also wasn't super into the Church of England. She was a pretty staunch Protestant by the end of this, which could get a little dicey at this time. Um, so we'll get more into that in a second, but... I also want to say, to show again how influential she was in Elizabeth's life, Elizabeth translated her translation into Latin, French, and, and Italian and gave it to Henry and Catherine as a New Year's gift. That's how much Elizabeth loved Catherine Parr. She's like, here, stepmom, I translated your book into every other language. Isn't that gorgeous? Yeah. I mean, also, Elizabeth was so young when her mom was murdered. Yeah. Like... She has no mom. She has no mom. So, like, she really clung on to Catherine Parr. That's adorable. And I, and I, I marry, like, half-raised her as well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it was, like, her lady-in-waiting for a bit. Yeah. So in 1545, she published Prayers or Meditations. Uh, this book, fun fact, was the first book published in England by a woman under her own name in the English language. Shit. Isn't that cool? That's so cool. I I had no idea. It is 60 pages of vernacular text that she was using for personal devotion. Mm. So I feel like, I you might know, pray now. Let me get, <laughs> let me buy one. <laughs> and like this, I think is the kind of would be like a celebrity devotional book. Like if Dolly Parton wrote like a book of like, this is, these are the things that I like to meditate on while I pray. I would also read that. Of course. And that's <laughs> what this was for people. It was like, oh, this is what the queen does for her devotion. And this is also, again, kind of revealing her Protestant leanings because she is really focused on people's personal personal relationship with God. Right, and isn't there such is a the manifest destiny vibe, right? Yes. Where it's like you've been chosen by God to be a monarch of this country and yes. therefore you are being spoken to by the Lord, of course. Yes. So she based this book off of the 15th century Catholic devotional book, The Imitation of Christ by Thomas Kempis, but she altered it to suit the practices and beliefs of the developing Church of England and her own beliefs. So she's kind of playing both cards, like both sides of the coin at this time. She's like, I'm suiting it towards the Church of England, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. I'm also saying that you should have a personal relationship with God. <laughs> mm -hmm. So that's the second one. Then. She writes The Lamentation of a Sinner. So it's written in 1546, but not published until 1547. This last book is a deeply personal book about Catherine's own relationship with religion. She discusses her life before and after she knew Christ and her true feelings on the religious divide in England, as well as the pitfalls of the Catholic Church. This book acts as her definitive answer to why she is Protestant and why the church needs to be reformed. What a political statement. So this was published after Henry's death. <laughs> of course. Because critics had been suspicious of her for a little while now. So she's writing this book while being actively 
investigated for her Protestant leanings. It's like, I'm sorry, are you the right kind of Christian? Yes. I'm checking. And right now she wasn't. I need to check real quick. (laughs) I just need to check. So she always liked to talk religion and argue with Henry a little bit. And she would always take a little bit more of a Protestant lean. Love it. And Love it. the Bishop of Winchester and Lord Rothesley went to the king and they were like, you know those fun little spats you've been having with Catherine? This is not good. We think she might be a full-blown Protestant. And you've got to get rid of her. She is a threat to the Church of England and therefore your God-given power. They draw up an arrest warrant for Catherine. And rumors start going around that Henry has already had his eye on another woman. No! Catherine's close friend, the Duchess of Suffolk. Is she cute? I don't know. (laughs) Who is this Duchess? We will know. She's not going to go down in history. So someone finds out about the arrest, they bring the arrest warrant to Catherine, and they're like, did you know about this? And she goes, I'll take care of it. Woof! Woof! She goes, I'm not taking this lying down. She went directly to Henry, and because he trusted her so much, she was like one of the only like wives in his later years that had unlimited access to his bedchambers. Mm. He was really sick at this time. He was like bedridden. Bedridden. The festive Thro- leg. Like, really, really bad. And he didn't like a lot of women to see him like this, but Catherine he trusted. And so, like, this Catherine is so Howard, that king from Game of Thrones is so, yes. like, exactly. So she did have access because if she did not have access, like, Catherine Howard didn't have the type of access that Catherine Parr did. So she goes right to him and she manages to reconcile with him. She's like, honey, please, like, I only argue with you about religion because I know that your leg hurts. And she's like, I just thought that maybe like fun arguments would maybe take your mind off of the pain. She's like, true. That's it. Mental health. Yeah. She's like, I did this for you. So the following day, all is well. But an armed guard was unaware of the reconciliation and tried to arrest her while she's walking with the king. (laughs) Thankfully, Henry put a stop to it. It was like, it's all good. We're fine. But. Can you imagine having a spat with your husband and having somebody arrest you because of it? No, I'm insane. I'm insane. I'd be arrested all the time. (laughs) So (laughs) thankfully, she saved her head and King Henry VIII passed away before her on January 28th, my dad's birthday, 1547. Not your dad's birthday. Not my dad's birthday. (laughs) Shortly before he died, Henry made a provision for an allowance of 7,000 pounds per year for Catherine to support herself. He further ordered that after his death, Catherine, though a queen dowager, should be given the respect of a full queen of England. And like, like he was like, I want her to be respected as if I were still alive and she were the full queen of England. Like he wrote that in his will. Treat her like a person. Yeah. <laughs> That's what he said. Good for you, Henry. <laughs> and after the coronation of her stepson, Edward VI, on January 31st, Catherine retired from court to her home at Old Manor in Chelsea. And with her retirement and the king's death, Sir Thomas Seymour was finally allowed to return. He proposed and she accepted. Since only four months had passed since the death of King Henry, Seymour knew that the Regency Council would not agree to petition for the Queen Dowager to marry so soon. So sometime near the end of May, 
Rather than waiting, they married in secret. King Edward VI and the council were not informed of the union for several months. (laughs) And when it became public knowledge, it caused a scandal. But she had always liked him. It's not fair. This is like the first person she was crushing on. I know. The king and Lady Mary were very much displeased by the union. And this kind of undid a lot of the work that she had put in to mend the relationship with her children. They were really fucking angry about this. Couldn't she just have sex with him on the side? Did she have to marry him? Couldn't she just wear a black dress for a fucking year? Well, that's the thing. I I think because of her religious beliefs, she was like, oh, like, I have to get married. I have to get married. So (sighs) it's very upsetting. Why don't men have those beliefs? What are the men (laughs) beliefs about that? So the couple was censured and officially reprimanded. And then Thomas actually made things worse by asking Mary to just like smooth things over (sighs) with them in the court. Ew. Mary was furious at the forwardness of this request. And you do not want to make Mary mad. No. And she went to Elizabeth and she goes, don't talk to them anymore. Like they're (laughs) dead to us. And Elizabeth is like, well, I'm not going to do that. Like, Elizabeth, then, then we're so close. <laughs> it's like, I'm not going to listen to you. But <laughs> you mean the logical queen? <laughs> but, but this was, like, very traumatic because it just felt like a lot of the work she had done was just totally disrupted. And then there was all this other new drama between Catherine and her new brother and sister-in-law. So Edward and Thomas, because they are Seymours, are both the uncles of the new king. Edward the Sixth. Edward the Sixth. I am, I am. And, but Edward the Fifth was named the king's protector officially. Because Edward the Sixth is like young and sickly, yes? Young and sickly. Sure. Edward's wife, Anne, was pissed off at Catherine. There are seven names in this story and a hundred people. Ridiculous. (laughs) So Anne Seymour is pissed at Catherine because Catherine is still wearing the crown jewels. And Anne is like, excuse me? I'm the wife of the king protector. If anyone should be wearing the crown jewels, it should be me. Oh, shut just like, up. Anne, shut the hell up. Nobody cares what no Anne No one thing. cares about you, Anne. I'm it's sorry. Like, Did you survive King Henry VIII? I'm sorry. Did you survive? I survived. Catherine is like, well, I'm queen dowager, so I feel like I have more of a right than the king's protector aunt like what i'm the king's stepmother exactly literally Literally his stepmother so this stupid feud not only ruined the relationship between the two women but the brothers seymour as well it was really upsetting (laughs) is this personal at all very personal (laughs) so then there was another weird scandal and this one i really don't like Catherine had been living in chelsea house with elizabeth that's why Elizabeth was like, I'm not going to fucking turn my back on her. We're fucking yeah. roomies. QE1. We're roomies. Yeah. So when Elizabeth and Thomas were married, he moved into Chelsea House. <laughs> and then Thomas got real weird with Elizabeth. Uh-oh. He began to show affection towards Elizabeth, tickling her, <laughs> slapping her on the butt when she was in her bed, coming into her room. In his night clothes. And we all know that this woman is notoriously a virgin. Yeah. Her governess, Kat Ashley, thought this very scandalous. And she brought it to Catherine. 
And at first, Catherine was like, no, like, it's innocent fun. Like, it's just, no, come on. <laughs> like, no, we're just having a good time. No, stop it. And to try and kind of, like, prove that it was innocent fun, she even, like, joined in on the horseplay on a few occasions. And there was just, like, this other, like, really weird situation where, like, on one of the occasions where she tried to engage in the horseplay, like, they're, like, out in the garden, the three of them. And somehow Elizabeth's black dress gets all cut up. I am holding my breath. I know. I hate it. And it was like, oh, Catherine was like holding her. And then Thomas was cutting off her dress. It's like, God damn it, Catherine. You've been so good up until this point. What's going on? I don't know. And it's like really weird because we don't quite know Elizabeth's feelings on the situation. But it was said that she bore Thomas some degree of affection and she found him more amusing than dangerous. But the whole thing was weird and uncomfortable. And then years later, he tried to marry Elizabeth. So I'm not going to pass off Thomas's behavior as innocent. I don't think it was. I don't think it was a misunderstanding. I think that Thomas was a predator. And I think that Catherine was like, fuck, I spent years pining after this guy and I finally married him and now he's a creep. Again. 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 And I'm not excusing like her acceptance of the behavior. I think she was like really trying to convince herself that it was fine and normal. And then it wasn't. And there's so much we just don't know about Queen Elizabeth I. Like, Like there are many people who look at her as completely asexual. There are people who look at her as like she wanted to end the Tudor line because Mm -hmm. she was tired of the tyrants and like maybe she had lovers on the side or whatever. There's so much we don't know, but maybe this is one of like the as a child, my dad did this and my stepsister did this and my stepmother's new husband (laughs) did this. Like there's so much that leads to this woman being like, Nobody you know touched what? me. I don't Nobody do touched me. I don't want to. <laughs> I don't want to. Just paint my face white. Give me a Shakespeare collar. Let's be done with it. I'm going to send some people to the new world. Done. So. <laughs> okay. I'm sorry. Another wild so twist. Catherine, who is 35 years old at this point, is suddenly pregnant for the first time. No. Wait, how old? 35? 35. That's not wild at all. <laughs> But it was a huge surprise because she had she's obviously on her fourth husband and she was sexually active with all three previous husbands. Yeah, but they were all fucking everybody. Not the first sickly one. But we know he was like 17. So it's like she was like, I've been having sex for 20 something years and I've never gotten pregnant. What the fuck? So with this news, she was like, all right. Definitely can't have Thomas and Elizabeth in the same house. So Elizabeth, like, moves out. She goes to Hertfordshire. Why? Because she doesn't want Elizabeth to get pregnant. I think because she's like, okay, this is getting crazy. Like, I am already stressed about this pregnancy. I cannot have my husband, like, going after this young girl. Mm. And I'm obviously really putting my own spin on this because I want to be team Catherine. <laughs> and I'm also like <laughs> I'm also pro that decision. Exactly. Like, yes. Let's just get, get Elizabeth the girl out, out of, the house. of this traumatic situation. <laughs> get her out of the house. The um, next queen of England. Exactly. Or the next next. So she sends her away but then she also ends up moving and she goes to Sudley Castle and becomes roomies <laughs> with none other than Lady Jane Grey. Shut the fuck up. These two become so close. <laughs> 
And for the last few months of Catherine's pregnancy, and unfortunately her life, Catherine Parr and Lady Jane Grey are like the best of friends. Lady Jane Grey also didn't want to be queen. No, she did not. <laughs> like the most famous portrait of her is her blindfolded about to be murdered. It's so sad, Katie. It's so sad. Like Edward was just like, just so my Catholic sister can't be queen, let me make my random ass cousin queen. And Catherine and Elizabeth are like, what the fuck? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely crazy. Why do you piss off the stepsisters I like don't that? Know. I don't know. No need, Edward. Everyone's stupid. <laughs> so Catherine's only child was born on August 30th, 1548. And she named her Mary after her eldest stepdaughter. Then just a this, few days the later. twisted webs we weave because I she's know. named after Mary's mom at this point. Isn't that bizarre? Bizarre. <laughs> then just a few days later on September 5th, Catherine died of childbed fever. Oh, my gosh. Most likely an infection obtained during childbirth. Stop. Catherine's funeral was held on September 7th, 1548. It was the first Protestant funeral held in English in England. Whoa. Her chief mourner was Lady Jane Grey. <laughs> she was buried in St. Mary's Chapel in the grounds of Sudley Castle in Gloucestershire, England. But the Queen did not rest for long. During the English Civil War, Sudley Castle was used as a base by King Charles I leading to its siege and sack in January 1643, during which Catherine's grave was disturbed and her monument was destroyed. The castle changed hands several times during the war, suffering a second siege before being slighted in 1649, leading it to be largely abandoned, and the royal grave was lost. Catherine was lost <laughs> until 1782. When a local man named Joseph Lucas went looking for it while renting a house on the grounds, he found her remains in the ruins of the chapel, shockingly well preserved under layers of cloth. She was the queen. Yeah. She was the queen. I cannot believe that. Yeah. Just in the ruins of the church. And like, she was so well preserved, like in her coffin, her coffin's on the grounds, that like <laughs> she still had flesh on her. And this was 1782. Again, because the, the weather in England is disgusting. <laughs> but it doesn't end there. Enough to preserve a corpse. <laughs> yeah. But it doesn't end there. The coffin was reopened in 1783, 84, 86, and 1792 when local vandals broke into the <gasps> coffin, threw the corpse into a rubbish heap. Why? Leading Mr. Lucas to discover the body and reinter her yet again in a walled grave so she could rest in peace. Oh my god, a cask of Amontillado. Mm -hmm. He's walling her in. Mm -hmm. And in this last like during all these times when the coffin is being reopened, 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 they're taking like bits and pieces and like selling them. It's like this is the hair of Catherine Parr. This <sighs> is the cloth of Catherine Parr's core. Like disgusting so that's why we have so much of her like hair like little bits and pieces of her hair that's so yucky yeah. i really don't like that no um it's i'm not terrible. a big believer in the afterlife but also like i i'm not one to like perturb dead bodies yeah, disturb graves <laughs> um. uh, just you know <laughs> for the general like respect of a human being 
The last time the coffin was opened was in 1817 when the local rector decided to move it to the crypt under the chapel. Oh my God, I stopped taking notes. I was so enthralled. <laughs> when opening it this final time, it was found that the body had finally been reduced to a skeleton and much of the coffin was filled with ivy. Oh, man. The coffin was last moved in 1861 to its final location in the fully restored chapel under a canopied neo-Gothic tomb designed by Sir George Gilbert Scott with a recumbent marble figure by John Bernie Philip. Catherine Parr has gone down in history as the nursemaid wife, the woman whose job it was to deal with Henry's open wounds and deal with his bad temper. And to be clear, she definitely did that. That's why she had so much access to him. But to see her as this Florence Nightingale nurse with the candle symbol and like just as that and nothing else erases an incredible woman from the story. She is not just the last wife and caretaker of Henry VIII. She is an author. She is a ruler. She is a scholar. And she is technically the most married queen in English history. And despite having four husbands, she always, always signed her name Catherine Parr, her maiden name. Stop it! Damn it! And that's the story of Catherine Parr. Did you come up with Did you come up with that ending? Yes, I did. Damn it! I thought you might have copied that. That was good. (laughs) That was a good ending. I was like, damn, did another documentary do that? No, we did it. We did that here. We did it here. <laughs> um, yeah. I, that's why I loved her. Can I you believe she, it? Kept her main name. Kept, I mean, like, literally, all, all, and like a lot of the documentaries mentioned that. They're like, she always signed her name Catherine Parr, which I love. <laughs> so, girl, get it. Let's talk get about <laughs> these two and a little something we like to call just the two of us girls are playing games girls playing games and they're fucking winning (laughs) or losing (laughs) in the case of my girl uh yeah well (laughs) i just feel like yes these girls knew the game they're so smart so they were educated fucking smart in history in politics for themselves language let me tell you I something. I love it. Yes. And their stories were overwhelmed by men. I hate that Catherine Parr is just like overwhelmed with the story of King Henry VIII when she's like, that wasn't even her first or second husband. Come on. I think at this point, too, like um, Elizabeth McGee, it's like, oh, Charles Darrow made Monopoly. Yes. And then it's like, oh, no, a woman did. She's the third. Third, like she's not like it's like Charles Darrow. Then you have the Parker brothers underneath of him, right? Just like you have multiple men in the way of her story. Yeah, and that's very frustrating because you know what? She sounded like a blast. <laughs> she sounded like such a fun time. They both had such a big group of friends. Yes. It, it made it sound like um, Catherine Parr was like, oh, I'm going to go enjoy this fun time with like the people that I know. Mm-hmm. I'm so I get along with Mary the first. I get along with Elizabeth the first. I get along with Edward. I get along with every Jane, Lady Jane Grey. She got mm-hmm. along with everybody. She and did. Lizzie was like that. Yes, I totally agree. And I just feel like. It's interesting because, like, their dad's associated with, like, bigwigs. Like, I thought it was so funny that, like, her, like, 
Lizzie's dad was associated with Abraham Lincoln and <laughs> Catherine's dad was obviously associated with King Henry, which is very full circle and weird. Uh-huh, but, uh-huh, uh-huh. but I also feel like they must have like gotten something from like that childhood of like be friendly with people, make connections. It's who it's all in who, you know, right. You know, because her dad's a journalist. He's not mm-hmm. super famous. Mm-hmm. He's just getting along with Abe Lincoln. Mm-hmm. That's all he had to do. Yeah. And like her dad's trying to do the same thing. Yeah. And they were playing. He's the game. not famous. Like she's very famous. Yeah. Um, they're both writers. I loved that. That like they both had all these vast interests. I don't know. Like they're so multidimensional. Well, I like that she befriended the actual monopoly. Yes. Edward, Mary, Elizabeth. Get the three. She yep. got all three on her side. Yep. Now she pissed them off. Oh, but yeah. she <laughs> had the three big like after her who she married their dad mm-hmm. and then had all three stepkids on her side no the other person in the country had achieved that no because mary is super catholic mm-hmm. elizabeth is super not elizabeth yeah elizabeth is super church of england edward is super sickly <laughs> we don't even get to give him a real it's like he was church of england but yeah i just he held she she held the monopoly yeah well and i also just i feel like they were women who were looking out for themselves. There's a little bit of controversy in their story. Like, they're making waves, too. Like, they're not just playing the nice girl, and that's it. But they're known for the wrong thing. Yes. I to- Yes, they're both known for something that is so little in their story. <laughs> um, and it's funny, too, that, like, Elizabeth. Um, sorry. No. Yeah, Elizabeth. Sorry. Lizzie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> She was very critical of marriage, very um, di- like didn't want to make the wrong choice. Mm-hmm. And I feel like Catherine also didn't want to make the wrong choice. But ultimately, like she didn't have a lot of time. Like Lizzie didn't get married until she was like, what, like 44? 44. Like, 44. Catherine didn't even live that long. <laughs> yeah. I find it interesting that um, Elizabeth was putting out an ad talking about marriage being mm-hmm. slavery. But the royals actually lived that. Yeah. Not that early American women or yeah. women of the 1800s didn't live that and still live it today in some countries. But I mean, it is if you were born in any sort of gentry or lordship, mm-hmm. your marriage was not your choice. And no. that is what Elizabeth M- McGee was trying to tell the world. Yeah. And it's what Catherine Parr also understood. She dealt with it. And she was like, all right, well, my second marriage, since my mother, I don't have a keeper anymore. Mm. Like, mm. my husband is dead. My mother and father are dead. So, Your like, chaperones are gone, baby. I technically have a chance to do something pretty radical, and I'm going to make a choice that benefits me in the long term. Mm-hmm. Because, again, she's playing Monopoly to win. She's like, I'm going to pick the properties that are worth the most. Mm-hmm. And I'm go- she's playing very strategically. And yes. I feel like she does not get a lot of credit for that. And I also feel like, you know, obviously Lizzie does not get enough credit for all the work that she did and Mm -hmm. all the other things that she did. Because, again, it's like she didn't even technically get credit for the thing that she's most famous for. And yet she also patented other things. I want you to look up her fucking board game. I need you to look up the layout. Look at it. It's insane, Katie. It's insane. But I also think Lizzie played the game more like an Anne Boleyn. Mm. She was so excited to have won and to give the Parker brothers her game for $500 that she ended up losing in the end. Mm -hmm. 
Catherine Parr played it smarter. Yeah, she did. She she played the game um, with logic instead of with emotion. Mm-hmm. And I think that Anne Boleyn really did love Henry, and she really did think he loved her. Yeah. And uh, that's, like, I think that Lizzie really thought the Parker brothers valued her ideas. Yeah. And unfortunately, they were just trying to get themselves out of a sticky situation and tricked her badly because she could have sued the pants off of them. Yes, she could have. If women were allowed to sue back then. (laughs) I think she would have had to find a male sponsor, most likely, at that that time period. Yeah. Um. Hmm. Well, I I feel so depressed. I know. But like, I just. Both of these women were so strong. And that is one thing that I'm like really taking from both of their stories. Like and and smart and action oriented. We forget that women in history did things. Mm -hmm. They're so often like I was listening to. um Oh, wait, no, it was the fucking documentary we watched (laughs) earlier where they were talking about how uh, feminists protested against natural history museums Mm -hmm. because all of the women in all of the dioramas Mm -hmm. are just like a woman with a potter pan or a woman with a baby. And I forget that they were making, not only is it insulting to women, but to indigenous women specifically, that they are not making any decisions that they're yeah. just like a play like mm-hmm. a pawn instead yeah. of like an active an active participant in the society right and it's not saying that like those things aren't important because obviously like, they're so important feeding everyone is important taking care of children is important but also what's important is the fact that like they were more well-rounded than we give them credit for mm-hmm. and like they were doing other things besides that <laughs> right and it just wasn't reflected and i don't i think still is not reflected no no and no, it isn't. i think a perfect example is like these two stories the the nuance of women is just simply not reflected in their stories like Catherine parr i didn't even remember that she was mm. the sixth one frankly like yeah. she is just one of a whole bunch of wives that like we don't really think about very much and it, i'm i was just i think anne bullen is the most famous i'll just say it because she's, she's the most scandalous. Because she's the most scandalous. We have the and, same initials and I'm obsessed yeah. with her. <laughs> and I just feel like it is frustrating that like women are put into this box over and over again in history of like you're either a Madonna or you're a whore mm-hmm. or you're forgotten. Yeah. Well, and it'll be like people will be like, well, how do I? make it look like a woman is being strategic and it's like well actually on isaac newton's grave you you have a statue of him with an apple falling on his head you can figure out how to show women being strategic because you showed gravity yeah and gravity's invisible so fucking figure it out figure it out (laughs) figure it out i'm sorry go and do it all right well i think let's toast we're good let's toast these women Allie, who would you like to toast this moment this this week? I want to toast people because I've absolutely been in this situation where you would you're so excited about your idea and the sale of your idea that you go to the first buyer yeah. without looking at the fine print. Mm-hmm. And I I think that Lizzie was so proud of herself. Yeah. And like I'm proud of you too, girl, but Yeah. Cheers to you. Cheers to people who are just too trusting. Yeah. I'm going to toast the women who get defined 
by shitty men (laughs) (laughs) when they have so much going on for themselves because just hate that for you Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. (laughs) justice for those women justice (laughs) all right what are you enjoying in pop culture this week okay everybody please sell regular mint shit during christmas i cannot find it's very hard. Last year, I couldn't find any. So the ones I found, I saved them. Mint candy canes. There's Jolly Rancher candy canes, and there's this candy canes, and there's that candy canes. Oh, you're meaning like r- peppermint. Oh, yeah. Peppermint. I could not find, last Christmas, red and white candy canes. <gasps> My mom had to find them and give them to me, and I saved them in the freezer all year. You know what's crazy? I've had that experience. It's yes, hard. It's crazy. And Marjorie couldn't find the red and white Hershey Kisses. My librarian sister loves the red and white Hershey Kisses. Couldn't find them. Like, people have started to get so bizarre with their candy that they forgot that the bit, like, candy corn has it right. You got one thing, and you stick to your thing. One thing, one holiday, get it in, get it out. I need the, I need people to sell actual peppermint. And I do understand that if you're walking through the store, sometimes you see it on a store cap end. But if you're looking for it, it's hard to find. It's a Where's Waldo situation. You know what's crazy is I had that same experience a few years ago. I was going to a cookie baking party and I was going to make I, I make a fantastic uh, matzah peppermint chocolate caramel brittle. And not to toot your own horn. Not to toot my own horn, <laughs> but it is fantastic. And I stole the recipe from the restaurant, restaurant I used to work at. Perfect, perfect. And I could not find plain peppermint candy canes anywhere. So, yes, you are correct. It's really upsetting. It's horrible. So, I'm promoting stores to just sell some fucking peppermint. Order extra. Please. We'll we, buy them. We actually all want that. Like, yes. I, our, our Santa Claus in our house on Christmas Eve, when after the kids go to bed, hangs candy canes on all the Christmas trees. <gasps> it's so cute. And there was, like, part of the, you know how, like, in old, olden days, Santa Claus would actually decorate the tree? Yes. Mm-hmm. So, I, I always, my mom as a kid, and we always hang candy canes that's really so it's cute. like you wake up in the morning and there's candy canes all over the tree i love that and it was like i couldn't even find any i was so upset i had sister looking for them i had my mom looking for them i had producer looking for them we could only find like shitty jolly rancher candy canes i was like santa doesn't do that no maybe the north pole's out of commission right now i don't know I okay know. what are you looking what are you into i'm gonna promote an undervalued Christmas movie, which is Lady and the Tramp. <laughs> Pidge. Um, I watched it the other day because I was like, oh, I was like, it's, it's so dark so early and we can only afford to heat ro- one room of the house at a time. <laughs> so <laughs> I was like, I'm going to stop heating the office and heat the downstairs living room. So I turned the heat on and I was like, oh, the puppies might like this, you know, really just because I want to watch it. <laughs> And let me tell you, they did. They loved it. Of course they did. And I love Lady's voice in that movie. It's so husky. Like, not, like, if I were voice casting that movie, I would never pick the voice that they picked for her. It's like, it's so unique. Mm -hmm. I love that. I also think that maybe this movie gave me the fear around childbirth that I have currently. (laughs) Because, yeah. They have a baby and like, <laughs> like they are like, fuck you, dog. Like we're pregnant. Like, mm-hmm. and like, of course, like they do like bring the dog in at some point. But I was like 
scary. I was like, wow, I guess like when you get pregnant, like in my childhood, I was like, I guess when you get pregnant, you hate your dog. Like, I hate that that is like a weird message of that movie. Can you also imagine the dog love story? If they had had humans as the dog love story and they pan off in the park and And then then come back and lay pregnant. Could you imagine a Disney princess where they pan out of the bedroom and they're just like her male friends being like, hoeing it down. They're hoeing it down. I'll marry you. you, Scotty dog. I'll make a woman out of you. AKA Monopoly. So full circle. You mean Toto? So, but yes, I would still recommend it though. I think it's a gorgeous movie. It is a good movie. It's a Christmas movie. Starts at Christmas, ends at Christmas. Uh, little little baby puppies in boxes. They're little floppy ears. Come on. <laughs> I love the tramp. And I love him. <laughs> if karaoke would let me, I would love to sing that song. I think karaoke um, will let you. <laughs> I, I think their entire job. If the karaoke gods would let me. <laughs> their entire job me. is to let you. If I will ever do it. Um, which is so funny because I had the opportunity for my birthday and I chose dancing instead, which I stand behind. That was so fun. Was the best. Um, <laughs> everybody had the best time. It was true. Uh, so anyways. I want to do karaoke, but I want to do it for someone else's event. I don't want to be responsible for the event. You know what I'm saying? Heard. I should have done it that night. We went out. That that weird bar. I have that picture of you with the knife. I had to, I had to really search in my brain for that one. Jake spilled red wine all over that girl. Um, anyways, so watch Lady and the Tramp. Pay attention to Lady's voice. It's very good. Very sexy. And... Follow us on all the things. <laughs> this is a tragedy. Um, we're on Instagram. We're on LinkedIn. We're on Facebook. We're on X, <laughs> formerly known as Twitter. Um, we're on everywhere. So check it out. We have an author interview with a documentary filmmaker, which is absolutely thrilling for us. So yeah, please think, check out that. And I think I would also say we have a website. Oh, yes. And that's where you can. We, you only get 100 episodes at a time from us. But if you I go to the it. website, we, we have everything. All of it's there. All of it. Yeah. Everything back from 2018. Ugh, crazy. Yeah. When I was a baby child. Yes. And um, yeah, because we've covered so many women that I'm literally forgetting how, like some of the women we covered. <laughs> I don't know the names of half of the women we've yeah. covered. So check it out. And if you would, we would love it if you left us a rate and a review on Apple Podcasts. That would be delightful. But mostly, we want you to never forget that well-behaved women mix their cocktails in white wine glasses. Yes, they do. And they rarely make history. (laughs) Goodbye. You've been listening to Her Story on the Rocks. We are independently produced by 1986 Entertainment and proudly recorded in Baltimore, Maryland. If there's a woman in history you would like us to cover, you can email us at herstoryontherocks at gmail.com. You can also message us on Twitter or Instagram. We post all of our cocktail recipes on Tuesdays so that you can go get all the supplies you need and drink along with us. See you next week. Bye.